Welcome everybody, episode two, Future of Beauty Unfiltered. I am so excited, we have not one but two guests joining us today. One is actually our very own Chris Bullock, CEO here at The Pull Agency, amazing brand brain, ex p and and just all-round great guy. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, huh? Thank you. I have, do I get pay rise for that? It, well, we'll talk about okay, it. Okay, all right. Um, and actually, uh, this second guest we are beyond thrilled to have today, um, a well-renowned marketing copywriter, creative director, and author. Um Steve Harrison. Steve has been the world's leading direct marketing creative director. He has been the European creative director at Ogilvy One and worldwide creative director at Wonderman. He also founded his own agency, HTW, which quickly became the benchmark for creative excellence, not only here in the UK, but around the world. He has won more major awards in his discipline than any other in the world. Steve has written several books, including How to Do Better Creative Work and Can't Sell, Won't Sell, Advertising, Politics and Culture Wars. The latter has been described by the IPAs as the most provocative advertising book in years. Don't we know it? We talk about it a lot internally here at Pull. The book explores the advertising and marketing industry's obsession with brands' pursuit of social purpose and other political agendas in their advertising. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Um, we've been so excited to talk to you. Obviously, you were going to be um, a panellist for us at Future of Beauty. Yes. Yeah. One of our recent pieces of research is your brand, Too Woke, Brand yeah. versus Social Purpose. Um, and I'm really excited to actually have you here today because... You know, a lot of actually the reason why we came up with the topic and I guess the pursuit for this research and insight from consumers was the back of a lot of your books and I think your thinking. And I think it's a really, really fascinating topic indeed. Um, you know, we've got loads of questions today, but I think what I'd love to do is just recap why, I guess, Future of Beauty Unfiltered exists a little bit. And I think one of the things that we've learned since launching our series of research in 2020, which is uh, nationwide pieces of research with over 2,000 respondents across the UK, the focus has always been to understand, I guess, what the consumer thinks. And I think that's really important sometimes in the marketing spaces. We forget that. Um, so to make sure you're sharpening the pencil and checking back in on you know, where people's heads are at um, is really important. And this topic was very close to our hearts, I think, in a lot of ways. It sparked a lot of debate internally, didn't it? And I think what was really interesting for me when we kind of set out on this was, and feel free to chip in, Chris, if there's anything in particular that uh, you feel I miss, but I think it was the disconnect we felt we saw once we'd done the research. So, you know, it, it was a very controversial topic. It was based around advertising, you know, inclusivity, diversity, lots and lots of conversations in that area. And do people, do people feel represented in this space? Um, are advertisers getting it right? And, you know, it was really important to us that the questions we put together and even the answers available were non-biased. Um, and that actually meant having some not so great answers along with some that from a personal perspective we might agree with. And I think the thing that really shocked us was we naturally tested it against our peers before we put it out to consumer. And the response we got was, you can't send that, you can't say that, this is going to offend people, this use of language, this term is biased, you're trying to sway. 
And that obviously wasn't the intent in which we'd written it. But I think eventually after taking all of that very valuable and, you know, appreciated feedback on board, we took a deep breath and went, we believe in this research. We believe the answers we are trying to get are non-biased. So we're going to kind of take a deep breath, hit the button and cross our fingers and wish for the best. And I think the thing that really surprised us was the difference between the reaction from the consumer to the reaction we had from the marketeer. And it definitely led to a lot of questions for us, which was, are, are we the problem? So I guess when we designed this survey and event, that backlash that we got from the marketeers, you know, it, it, it did stand out against what the consumer said. Do you think that the consumer cares less about pursuing social purpose in advertising, potentially, than the marketing and advertising community do? Um, let me first address the 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 the, the alarming uh, your alarming observation that the people in the marketing community just didn't want to use to do the research in the first place. Um, that for me is, is is probably the most striking point. Now, why would somebody? Well, why would an industry that doesn't decide what to have on the lunch menu without doing research into into that? Uh, which pub should we go to after work? Let's let's do some qual and some quant. And then they didn't want you to do research into one of the most pressing issues affecting our industry at the moment. Um, and I think it's because they didn't want the results that you were probably going to show. I mean, uh, it, it reminds me, your findings have reminded me very much of what Andrew Tenzerney and Murray have found with their, and if your listeners have not read their research, I think it, it alongside the research that you've done is the most interesting that's been done for the past four or five years. Andrew Murray and Ian, uh, Andrew Tenzerney and Murray's The Aspiration Window, The Empathy, Delusion and Gut Instinct. And their conclusion was we find the same basic pattern being reinforced time and time again. Advertisers and marketers diverge from the mainstream on every major psychological, behavioral, and attitudinal framework that we have explored. They inhabit two different worlds. And this is the conclusion that Andrew and, and Ian have reached about, uh, about the closed world that the marketing community live in. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, um, the other, your other question was, what was the... It was around really more, you know, consumers potentially not caring as much about the pursuit for social cause, and we didn't identify that they didn't care. Yeah. Chris? Well, what we did identify, which surprised me slightly, was that 32% actually wanted brands to support what mm. we defined as, you know, list of work causes but as as was picked up elsewhere Lionel Shriver for instance a spectator article uh, a bit skeptical about whether you know they cared that much and actually Andrew Tenzer um, refers to this idea of cognitive mi consumers as cognitive misers which I think is important because mm. I think it's just the point is not so much that they have a strong view either way mm. <laughs> they don't they don't really have a view either way um, when they're asked, though, they'll feel inclined to give what they think is probably the answer that is expected. Yes. So I think in reality, people are even less interested than our research showed. Is this something Andrew cites uh, as social, social desirability bias, that you will give the answer that you feel 
makes you feel, makes society think you're a good person. Mm -hmm. um, it's really interesting, actually. I think over the years, I've, I've done a lot of kind of work on, you know, I guess just personality analysis um, and things in a sales environment from mm. the role that I do. And I think what's really interesting is, like you say, you, you give the answer based on what you think they want to hear rather than actually the, the rightful answer. And I think that was one of the challenges when we were writing the answers to the questions was you had to have some extreme views that even might be different to your own that mm. you felt uncomfortable with reading mm. because it gives you a gauge on where those comfort levels were. Sure. Um, and I think that was, you know, really interesting. I think, you know, do you think there's a turning point in social purpose now? You know, have we have we peaked? I think Andrew um, in our in our event, uh, like I mentioned earlier, rightly pointed out when I actually asked him this question, Andrew Tenza, he said, you know, we live in a little bit of a warped world where some people are struggling to just turn their lights on at the moment with kind of the electricity crisis and situations that we're in. Um, the cost of living, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the wider world, and yet there seems to still be this huge drive and push around social purpose. Have I, we peaked at that point? I think Andrew said that here we are on a Thursday morning talking about social purpose, yeah. um, when everybody else is actually talking about how they're going to pay the, the, their fuel bill, um, how they you know, kind of why, why their big shop has, has gone from £10 every visit to £12 every visit. Um, yeah, that kind of, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, is, is the tide turning? Um, I, I, th I think that we were, the, the most instructive moment for me was two weeks ago when Mark Pritchard who is probably the most famous advocate for social purpose in the marketing community, and another PNG man, um, Chris. And mm. we Have all, we gone too far? Well, know? he yeah. said... Yeah. It all, is a big question, that, isn't it? Well, he, he said, uh, week last Friday, I think it was, that profit, is, profit comes before purpose. Not, I mean, we know that pre-COVID, people were asking questions like, is there any point to profit without purpose? Yeah, kind of um, post COVID, you you get you get Mark saying that it's profit before purpose and quote the order matters because first and foremost we're in business. Our job is to innovate on our products. Our growth drives economic good. Growth drives jobs. It decides the partners you work with, the retailers you work with, and it enables you to do more good for society and planet. Force for growth leads to being a force for good. And I think that the implicit message of that is that telling people you're making the world a better place does not sell as well in telling people that you make a better profit. So I'd repeat that, that telling people that you're making the world a better place does not sell as well and does not contribute to growth as well as telling people that you make them a better product. It doesn't necessarily make the world a better place either. So no, no, but it funds your sure, sure. laudable intentions. And I'm no, let's let you know, kind of uh, that if you're not selling that product and turning a healthy profit, then all your laudable intentions. And let's not denigrate those laudable intentions. But you will not be able to achieve those things. You will not be able to hit your targets. You will break your promises. Mm -hmm. That you have got to, as Mark Pritchard says, we're not paying enough attention to growth. Well, I think absolutely. And what he meant was, if it's all you do, and I mean, there are marketers have been proponents of it being the only thing you do that matters. Yeah. And I think that uh, what he's doing is 
helping the industry row back a little bit from, from that position. I mean, you and I talked about this, Steve, and, and questioned whether there is some kind of turning point. The feels there is, it feels as though there is to me, both you and I have had people you know, come to us and say, I'd like to be seen to appreciate what mm. you're saying or you're writing, mm. but I can't be seen to do that. I, I think you and I are both writing things in the public domain now that we, we would have found very difficult mm. to have done a couple of years ago. Well, I don't think we've, I don't think we've turned a debate into our, to, uh, to our side, but at least a debate is being had, mm. which two years ago it wasn't. Yep. Uh, there was a group think, there was a conventional wisdom, which was not to be challenged and I think it is being challenged and it's being questioned and, and the debate is being had. And that's a wonderful thing. But I am still getting emails from people saying that I would love to be able to comment on your posts, but I will suffer, quote, reputational damage if I do so. Yep. And that yep. for an industry, for a creative industry that is, that is founded on freedom of thought and expression is a damning indictment of, of the situation that's been allowed to develop by the industry's institutions, and I include those, the, the Advertising Association, the DNAD, the DMA, the networks, the holding companies that allowed this kind of groupthink to be imposed and this fear to, to, to exist. I think it's a shocking indictment. Mm, yep, agreed. I think, I think what's challenging as well, and it's one of the things we've observed, is sometimes the lack of diversity um, in thinking in this this particular topic comes down to the lack of diversity of conversation and mm -hmm. i think we talk about this a lot internally don't we chris um you know challenging those mindsets and and not being afraid to challenge and say no uh, and encouraging completely different views mm. to be aired i for me doing that piece of research which you know we were told by the industry was controversial mm. and we were told by the consumer was fantastic and we're so glad you asked it, it, it created a debate in the agency, which I couldn't quite believe, and it's been really cathartic. I mean, everybody has had their say. Yeah. Um, I wrote my, you know, about my point of view, and some of our young, youngest team members were immediately asked to counter that. They did exactly that. And instead of this thing sort of festering in the, the closed circles you know, which, which is normal, we have a Venn diagram now mm. <laughs> where, you know, the, the, the woke and the unwoke mm. <laughs> of the agency kind of moved towards each other, debated these subjects, and I think what we found is that they actually had much more common ground than each party, as it were, thought that mm. in, a, in a real world view, there wasn't this terrible divergence that you see exacerbated by social media. I, I think that the vast majority of people who work in the industry um, are tired of the politicization of the workplace. Uh, they simply want to get down to doing work that they could be proud of. Mm. Um, and, um, and I think that the, the, the drive towards social, the, the insistence that social purpose is the raison d'etre for the industry is one that has been driven by a very small, relatively very small culture of activists who are genuinely committed to the cause of rectifying climate change, to the cause of institutional rectifying institutional racism. Um, sincerely committed to that, but also they're, they're, in, they're, 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 they're joined by a group of 
opportunistic award seekers and careerists <laughs> who see that this is the way of furthering their career. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a challenge. I think one of the things as well that I found quite interesting was, and to no surprise actually when we had the discussion at the panel, the generational and gender differences mm -hmm. um, within it. And I think Andrew, again, he's getting a lot of airtime here because <laughs> he gave us some great, great kind of references. Uh, when I asked him about the elusive Gen Z um, that everyone seems to have caught up on a little mm. bit, it was rather than thinking about them as a group of people, think about them as the... Uh, group of people in that stage of their life and he referenced you know look back at the 60s mm. the people now that potentially are being a little bit more uh, cynical uh, kind of the skeptics you'd look to now mm. they back then were the ones pushing the boundaries sure. challenging and driving and I think a lot of the time actually um, we, we forget that I mean we have this conversation all the time don't we I mean, I think it's it's another one of those frauds about generation said to be honest I mean you know we we often say everything's changed, nothing's changed. And to my mind, I mean, young people have always been idealistic, revolutionary, reactionary, you know, and um, and have had different um, worldviews and attitudes to their uh, their parents, and and that hasn't really changed. So this idea that you know Generation Z is some newly minted form of human being with a superior moral framework much more likely to be inclined to uh, you know, support uh, social causes, etc., is, is to me, it's something of an illusion. It's a transitory phase, and it's yeah. only what you'd expect. And, I mean, and again, Andrew, like you say, get a lot of, you know, said don't muddle up a cohort effect with a generational one. And therefore, you know, looking at the whole of Generation Z and the only thing they have in common is their age and saying, well, look at this. Mankind has changed. It's just nonsense. Mm. I think there's a, there's a massive generalisation based upon the attitudes of, again, it's probably a small group of people who appear to be driving the, the, the attitudes and behaviours of their, of their, of their generation. Uh, youngsters have always sought to differentiate themselves from their, their, their parents. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, it has been through... The, through fashion through music through the way they dance through the way you get out of your head oh yeah don't <laughs> tell me i look like my mom biggest insult ever but she's great <laughs> but the problem is now that um that the dividing line between adult and youngster is mm. blurred completely. Yeah. I look at the, the average age of people who go to Glastonbury, for goodness sake. <laughs> I think technology's played a huge part in that as well, I think, as well. Yes, yes, it has. But, if, but, but now I think that if you can't differentiate by clothing, by fashion, because your mum and dad are, 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 not, are clinging on... <laughs> you know, kind of tenaciously to their, to their youth, then the way that this generation does differentiate itself is from its set of social values mm. uh, and berating mum and dad about the, the words, the language that they use, uh, berating mum and dad, uh, scolding them about the, the, the produce that they buy. But I do believe that that is probably only, frankly, a small group of people within that cohort. I mean, when I was a punk, there were only five punks in Blackpool until 1977. Oh, believe me. Um, you know, kind of the, the, the core, the people who lead youth movements are tiny minority. And when, the, when, the, when those youth movements become mass, they actually dissipate mm. into meaninglessness. So I think that the people who are leading the youth movement for social justice are a tiny minority of where the young people are at. Um, 
Billy Duff, Bobby Duffy has written a brilliant book. He was the director of global research at Ipsos, and he's written a brilliant book called Generations, and he says that one of the biggest myths uh, the media press upon us is this idea that we're building a generation of social revolutionaries, social activists. The, the difference between Generation Zers and millennials are actually very tiny, mm -hmm. and actually the people who are doing something about the climate crisis, the ones who are more willing to get actively involved, are the millennials. So yeah, when, it, when it comes to mm. actually doing something, yeah. the millennials are and much course, more willing to become involved and make sacrifices. Mm. Uh, and this is the researcher's great challenge, isn't it? Not the millennials, sorry, the boomers. Sorry, yeah, correctly. no, you're absolutely boomers, right. Not the millennials, yeah, certainly yeah. not the millennials, well, the boomers. Well, this you know, is how the difference between well. exactly what, what people say they do or, uh, and what they actually do is the researcher's ever-challenging question. And I think it's getting harder because I think there's a gap, growing gap, mm. between what people say they do and what they do. But in sustainability, again, um, you know, the older generations get a bad rap. And um, what we found in our research, and again, it's only based on what people said they do, is that young people said they were much more likely to buy uh, sustainable brands than mm. older people but when it came down to what you actually do mm. about sustainability okay mm. you know recycling composting actually doing stuff it was the boomers that were doing stuff yeah. so the youngsters told a good story yeah, <laughs> but well, it was the boomers who were actually doing and doing the stuff that Take care of as the, the cost of living crisis deepens, it is the boomers who'll be able to afford to do so. Yeah, that's a factor uh, as well. Can Cantor's sure, yeah. research suggested that after the 2008-2009 financial crisis, it took 10 years for people's purchasing habits to return to pre-financial crisis levels vis-a-vis -vis the purchase of organic food, sustainable food. I remember so seeing that. We are yeah. going, it is going to, this is a game changer as far as people's active involvement exactly. in and making... Un unfortunately, unsurprisingly, people's interest in sustainability is directly geared to their disposable income. So it will go down. Mm. And we're about to see that. Unfortunately. Yeah. I think as well, people are drilling more... We mentioned kind of the difference, or very little difference, between Gen Z and Millennial. But actually, this is what started off this whole debate for us internally in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we, um, as Chris so fondly re relives, um, a, a dinner between myself, Chris, and uh, an ex-colleague of ours. And, uh, you know, we were debating the topic routes, conversations, and, mm -hmm. and I guess fundamentally the key things we wanted to understand from research. And I think the thing that, uh, to Chris's delight, erupted was <laughs> you had two very strong women at the table uh, who were both technically millennials, but we sat at opposite ends of the age bank mm. within that. Mm. And our views, and also even when we referenced, um, even things like who influenced us when we were younger, mm -hmm. they were completely... The hot topic was body positivity, it wasn't it? Oh, gosh. And you, you two, yeah, yeah, blew my brains out by having a completely opposite perspective. But yeah. we were literally, in, in every other way you could think, we're from the same kind of uh, yeah. walk of life, both have the same kind of amazing privilege yeah. and opportunities. But when it came to body positivity, you had you know one party who was very much like, well, my view was around body positivity that we should be inclusive so adverts like uh, mm. marks and spencers you know 18 months ago i'd be walking mm. through the underwear section and i'd see a, a lovely 
pert bottom with stretch marks on it. And I was like, yes. And it made me <laughs> stop in my tracks and take a photo and send it to my sisters, mm. being the eldest of, of six kids, five girls. I'm always trying to you know, enforce yeah. that body positivity. And I was like, yes, this is amazing. Go. Yeah, yeah show off your tiger stripes. And then you had kind of um, Claire, who absolutely amazing brand brain. And, and I loved having the debate with her, kind of was like, I feel very differently. That's not something that would make me go, yes, mm. I want to see aspir- um, I want to see aspirational. And I, it kind of started the debate for us internally of can beauty be both? And the word both is really mm. key here, aspirational and inclusive. Mm-hmm. And that was really one of the key topics that led us to go, we need to understand this more because it seems to be that at times they're kind of picking a side. Yeah. And we wanted to understand more how that was being translated. So I, I guess this transitions me really nicely onto my next question, well, actually. Can I, can I make a comment about yeah. that? It, it, um, as far as body positivity is concerned, if you make obesity acceptable and the norm... Or, or it, that, that it's okay, that it obesity becomes... There's a, there's a taboo against obesity because it's actually good for people to have this taboo about obesity because if you don't say that... If you say that actually obesity is fine and it's something that, you know, kind of you don't need to try and... You need to embrace your obesity, then you have severe danger of, of subjecting yourself to type 2 diabetes by the time you're 35 years of age. I think it's and a balance you, for sure. And you have severe, you have much greater incidence of heart disease amongst the, the, amongst the obese in society. There are a lot of reasons why normalising obesity uh, is not a great idea. And, the, and these, taba- these kind of taboos are in place not because of the patriarchy imposing these but the taboos upon people, but because it's actually better for you to remain reasonably slim and slender if you want to live a productive, healthy and happy life. And in the advertising community, I think, in, in, in extending its remit to, into these areas is perhaps in normalising obesity, having a damaging effect upon society and a means of exploit in, in an exploitative way. But do you think so? I think this is really interesting. So I've just had a look at Chris here because he knows this is a real kind mm. of uh, topic for me mm. and we've debated this a lot. Do you think, though, I think I, I completely agree that, um, you know, we all have a right to strive for a healthy, yes, we happy do. life. But I think bodies come in all shapes and sizes at different Mm. fitness levels, uh, health levels, uh, and everything else. Mm. And I think while there's normalising obesity, I think it's more actually identifying that not one body always looks the same way. And Mm. what it's actually doing is saying perfection isn't the only option. And I think that's sometimes where it goes too far. There's a difference between a size 16 and a size 24, though. Oh, Um, yes. And I think that 16 could... You know, kind of, it's is, is perfection, you know, kind of, but a size 24 is dangerously, morbidly over, over, overweight. It reminds me a little bit of um, some of the feedback we got in the research about diversity and advertisers overdoing it. Mm. And the feedback came back really was, look, just reflect society, hold a mirror up to the actuality of UK society in mm. terms of diversity. And while that was more about uh, ethnicity, I'd say, principally in terms of the research, I think, so we didn't specifically uh, include, you know, 
mm. BMI or whatever. But I think that that's what most people want. And I, that's why f- for me and for a lot of people, body positivity was the one sort of social woke cause that we, that we put on our list, yeah. which was borderline and people generally came back and supported. And therefore we, after giving Unilever, for instance, a hard time on some of their brands and Alan Jope in particular, um, you know, we singled out Dove as, as doing a game-changing thing yeah. when all they did, as you'd see it now, but it was radical at the time, was to n- n- use normal-sized people in advertising, which had never been done before. Mm. I think where certainly I would I would agree with Steve, and I think it can go too far, is literally encouraging people to be dramatically obese. And I've I've seen not so much some ads, but editorial along those lines. I think that, that's just silly. I, mm. I I would agree with you, but I think what we're seeing in body positivity is just a better reflection of life that you see around you every day but i think this debate this comes back to the key debate we're having right now which is has it gone too far at points like you kind at of points yeah. probably yeah um so i guess just trans transitioning incidentally it was the great mt rainey who pioneered body to my mind body positivity when for her marks and spencer's commercial in about 2006 she showed a lady who would be by common consensus at that time, overweight, stripping off her clothes, climbing to the top of a hill and shouting. That's right. And and dear old MT pioneered that, but it was an idea, unfortunately, well, before its time, Mm. uh, before it reflected the fact that the the vast majority of people are overweight. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully, uh, if we uh, manage to get this research later on in the year off to the right start, we'll be able to answer Mm. some some of those questions. Um, so I guess one of the other questions that we wanted to kind of, uh, I guess, get your views on Steve actually mm. today was, and it might sound like a really simple one, is uh, what makes good marketing? So um, I think you've mentioned quite a few times when we've been chatting before we started recording around copywriting. Mm-hmm. Okay, With your experience in copywriting and kind of brand communications, yes. what do you believe is the most important aspect that brand marketeers need to get right in their messaging to engage with their audience and their uh, consumers? Customer utility. Um, that, that should be the focus of all of our marketing activity. What, how useful is this to the customer? How can we make our products useful to the customer? I think that it, it's instructive that Mark Pritchard said, okay, our job is to innovate on our products. Okay, our job is to innovate on our products and then, I think the implicit message being then explain to people why that innovation is going to be useful to them, how it will make their lives better, happier, more, whatever, whatever. And our focus needs to be to go back to customer utility. I think that the customer utility was the dominant form of marketing and advertising between 1960. There is a, a fabulous... Um, I love how old school you are with all of your amazing pieces of paper, actually. <laughs> I'm sat here with my laptop, my battery's slowly running mm. out. <laughs> There's a great book uh, written by a man called Jack Springman. A very nom- It's about to come out I, soon, I hope. And he explains that between 1960 and 1990, it was, the, it was the, the dominance of customer utility at the core of all advertising. And then brand... Uh, the obsession with brands mm. began from mm. 1990 through through to the present to the current. I, and, and if I may continue, uh, Dave Trott, 
Mark Ritz and uh, Bob Hoffman, will tell you that you build a brand from the bottom up, that you don't get people to buy your product by loving your brand. You get people to love your brand once they've bought your product and used it and found it useful in your life. And this is why I was so dismayed to see the, the rise of so-called brand purpose, because it had nothing to do with that, the actual utility of the brand. I mean, the P&G mantra, in a way, is incredibly simple. It's make demonstrably superior products mm. in every category you operate. You, mm. you must be the brand leader or number two. Otherwise, mm. don't be there. And then communicate that benefit to the consumers. And I can remember when I first you know, discovered that in the interview I had with P&G, I thought, well, this is awesome. How could they possibly go wrong? And of course, you know, the, the, their, the stock performance in particular has demonstrated you can't really. So to me, forgetting the purpose of the brand, which is to provide utility to the consumer yes. and say that it's actually about uh, the drive for social justice. Yeah. By the way, the consumer won't understand what you're talking about probably. Uh, is just a betrayal of our profession. Mm. I, I think as well, one of the things Catherine uh, highlighted, our, our head of brand strategy here at Paul at the event, was one of her observations was, you, you, every company can have that social purpose, mm. um, but it doesn't have to be part of your marketing strategy. And I think that's definitely where we've lost our way a little bit, where, I mean, definitely, you know, we've spoken, we've had the pleasure of speaking with over kind of 200 brands, as I mentioned, in the last 18 months. It's been, you know, an amazing opportunity for us to understand themes, recurring challenges, frustrations of all shapes and sizes. Mm. And I definitely think one of the key things we've learned is your social purpose doesn't have to be that thing that you share online. It could just be what you do because you mm. want to make the world a better place or you want to contribute in one way or another and feel like you're making a difference. Well, you want to be a responsible business, aware of its responsibility to, to your customers, your suppliers, uh, your, your employees, your, your, your shareholders, and the silent stakeholder, which is the environment. And of course you should be doing all those things. But that doesn't translate, as you say, into marketing strategy. Um, if I may pursue that, in order to... to, to to have an impact upon people, it, in the in the in the classic role of customer utility, the process is very difficult. You do your research in the marketplace, you find out what how your product could be useful to people. You write a brief, you come up with a proposition which isolates and identifies how that product will help people in their lives. You sell that brief to the client. The client buys it, you then sell it to the creatives who have then got to come up with a proposition which builds emotion into that. Yep. It's then got to be sold to the client who is conservative and risk-averse. And this takes ages you know, and hard work. If you do sell it, you've got to protect that idea right through until, the, until it appears on screen, small screen or big screen, whatever. It's hard, 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 hard work. In order to... In order to build that emotional attachment, it's much easier to talk about the oceans, that are, the, the coral reef that is being destroyed, to talk about postnatal depression, to build about, you know, kind of, so the shortcut to all, through all of that hard work is actually to build that emotional touch. I'll attach my brand to this issue and I'll appeal to them, I'll make it emotive that way. But it has jack shit to do it's bogus. with the product yeah. or service or the brand, yes. And people aren't stupid. Mm. Well, this is, and again, why principally did the research, I and mean, we didn't touch on that, but I mean, the, the, the story was, having seen the financial press 
um, basically, you know, launch into marketing and marketing responded by going, but it's the right thing. We're not going to say why. We just, you know, we know we're doing the just right cause. thing. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I thought, well, where is the consumer in all this? I mean, I th ultimately, I think what we discovered is that social purpose, brand purpose, whatever you want to call it, is all about the marketers themselves, mm. you know. And, and my advice to modern marketers would be leave the politics at home. Mm. You know, it, it's not your brand, <laughs> it's yeah. theirs, yeah. okay? And, and the idea that you can spend the, your brand's marketing budget to promote a cause that is a particular interest to you is, is unprofessional. It's a form of fraud, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, Ian Pritchard, who's a great planner, works out of Melbourne in, in Australia, says that while Bob Hoffman has hit upon the, 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 the digital fraud, the, the fake, you know, kind of uh, sites, fake, you know, kind of... Ian, it says that actually the using the brand's budget, your client's budget, in order to promote the causes that are meaningful to you is a form of fraud. Exactly. It's, it's an appropriation of somebody else's resources. Yes. And it will yeah. be very damaging when it, when if that budget does not deliver and you have to... Well, this is why I think the whole subject is on borrowed time because yeah. at some point, you know, uh, the chickens are going to come home to roost. yeah. yeah. So I've got another question for you here, uh, and this is actually for both of you, um, but Steve, I'd love to get your view first. We saw in the survey, and I think we touched on this earlier, um, that cynicism, there's a lot of cynicism with regards to um, the fact that social purpose, uh, sorry, I'll start that again. In the survey, we saw that cynicism with regards to social purpose grows with age. Mm. So we touched on it earlier, um, and is particularly <laughs> uh, pronounced amongst men. So uh, grumpy old middle-aged white men, as we like to um, say. So for 25% of Gen Z, promoting social causes is of the highest importance compared to 9% um, of the 55-plus generation. I think the thing that I'm really intrigued about isn't necessarily that statistic, because we spoke earlier around the age piece. However, um, one of the extra things that uh, came out when we dug a bit deeper was men in this particular category, they definitely... Health and beauty, you mean? Yeah, in yeah. health and beauty. <clears throat> men in health and beauty, they felt uh, very differently about... Underrepresented. Well, one, they kind of were a bit more cynical about the social causes that were coming mm -hmm. out with yeah. 9%. Yep. Um, but actually, on the back of that information, we also then found that 64% of men don't feel well represented in health and beauty advertising. And some commented that body, body positivity doesn't seem to have extended to men at all. Um, my favourite line was, I can understand why, I don't think I'd buy a product from a fat, bald man either. Um, and there was kind of a bit of jest around it. And, and they made um, a lot of effort, actually, to feed into this commentary about the fact that they feel like men in the beauty category isn't, uh, they aren't particularly represented in a diverse mm. uh, way. Do you think the industry's guilty of double standards a little bit in that sense? I think society is guilty of double standards. You've just, in, within two minutes, talked about grumpy old middle-aged men. <laughs> uh, you've just talked about... Because I work with them, that's yeah, why. Fat, <laughs> fat old bald men. Um, and you wouldn't dream of referring to women in, that, in those terms. So mm -hmm. why do you think that it's okay to talk 
about men in those terms, but you would never dream of referring to a middle-aged woman in those terms. Can I ask you that? Well, they referred to themselves as the fat old bald man, not us. Right, okay, but you, 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 you talked <laughs> I'll, about I'll relay it, it. You, you yeah. quoted with some relish. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. it was, it was yeah. more, it took great joy in sharing that there information. Yeah, definitely. I think there are double standards. And I, that, funnily enough, is, again, another conversation that we had in the sense that um, in this pursuit for beauty with women, I think I touched on mm. it with you earlier, there are some people that will go out of their way to have uh, aesthetic treatments and then potentially hide it from their other halves or, or not be open about mm. any additional work or whatever it is that they have done um, in this pursuit of youth or mm. or beauty in their eyes yeah. um so i think there's a lot of double standards in a lot of different ways because you know i know i've had this conversation where i sit there and go no it's about body positivity and it's about mm. you know showing all the wobbles and all the shapes and sizes and then i go mm. and contradict myself because i get my hair done and i spend lots of money on facial products and go and you know all these different things and i try and watch what i eat and exercise partially for health reasons but partially for vanity reasons yeah. and I think when we've had these debates internally, you know, Chris, you and I, the response has been, when you've kind of challenged me and I've just sat there and gone, oh, now I don't know. I think it's because I've been programmed to say that response. I'm doing it for me. Um, mm. And I think, you know, there is a lot of double standards going on in a lot of different ways. But I think the thing that we found really interesting in this research is that men don't really feel represented within the category on, on quite a large basis. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I am not remotely surprised. Um, I think that it, you'll probably find that white working class men, working class men, would probably give you an even more emphatic uh, response. As well, to they why did. I mean, the older, the whiter, <laughs> and the and more male <laughs> our audience was, and, and uh, the more they, they, for instance, felt un unrepresented. But also C two D people mm. from that, that cohort. Which we didn't, didn't. The only time you ever see a white working class male in advertising nowadays is for is when Harry Redknapp is 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 uh, telling you to go and spunk your meagre wages uh, at, at um, you know, kind of uh, Betfair or Betfred mm. yeah, yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know, or, for, uh, or, or Ray Winston is, you know, kind of they, the underrepresentation of white working class people in general is phenomenal. It, it's, it's, it's that and the underrepresentation of people from the Indian subcontinent is also um, quite remarkable. Yeah, I, I mean, t with regard to the health to the health and beauty industry specifically, uh, in Hannah's question, I think that I think that the industry hasn't really caught up how to deal with men, <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is that what was very interesting to me was that people men elder men in particular said they felt underrepresented but they didn't care now the question is would they really do care mm. you know and i think there's a complexity there which you know so where the industry is has maybe caught up with the way women feel about how they look i think it hasn't with men i mean we're just completing um some research for a client and without sort of giving too much away um it's looking at uh, male and female attitudes towards uh, yeah, aesthetic procedures. Mm. And actually what we found is there's barely any difference, male versus female. Really? That, yeah. It, it's interesting because I think, um, so I was talking to Joseph Harwood um, 
last week um, and uh, their wonderful um, kind of trans non-conformist uh, person within the um, health and beauty community, particularly within the makeup space. And um, they referenced something that a perfume note had said to them. They were being very hush-hush because they couldn't tell us who they were working with. But um, that in the 50s, perfume was unisex and that actually it was marketing that created the gender divide within mm. the perfume category in the 60s and 70s. And we were debating this actually yesterday, weren't we, Chris, of there's a lot of other categories that you could apply this to. I think you mentioned razors mm. being Gillette as mm. one of those key mm. references. Um, razors for women, twice the price, same product. Mm. Different yeah. colour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's just, it's definitely something that... Um, is worth kind of exploring and just understanding. Do you think, you know, is there anything in your experience or what you've kind of done over the years where you can see this this kind of clear disconnect? I mean, you mentioned it earlier around a lot of double standards between men and women and commentary anyway. Um, no, not really. Uh, you mean the disconnect between the, the way that men are, men, male attitudes towards... Beauty, in particular. Oh, it's not really my, um, it's not a, a, a category I've ever really, I've had the, I've, I haven't had the good fortune to work in. Um, I just think that marketers are, you know, kind of marketers aren't aren't that dim. They know that there's a much richer vein to 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 mine in the female side. Capitalism works that way. That it, I don't, it, it constantly needs to find new markets or new aspects to an existing market and what it's doing now is doing a brilliant job of both capitalizing upon women's I'm doing it for myself um, and well-being aspects and also there I'm trying to look the, you know to the to the as you said before the vanity aspect of it so it's having it both ways at the moment mm. you know it's talking about well-being and your mental well, well-being yeah. but it's also talking about your physical attributes so mm. you know kind of so it's, it's mining two seams in the female market at the moment and probably find it's a lot easier to do that than create a new market on the male side if that makes sense yeah definitely actually um i think when we're talking about that in the marketplace, one of the other things that we have um, noticed is there seems to be a massive irritation with advertising these days. Um, we saw from the recent uh, BBH study that the number of people who find TV ads annoying has doubled over the last 20 years. And our research showed that 50% of people think ads aren't as funny as they used to be. 55% actually find them annoying. Um, this was also clear, I think, from a lot of comments that we saw um, <clears throat> off the back of the research. What do you think's behind that? Well, Lando Wood has written a wonderful book called Lemon, How the Advertising Brain Turns Sour, and he attributes this to the dominance of the left side, of, left, left hemisphere of the brain over the right hemisphere of the brain. Uh, and he says that periodically cultures shift between one and the other. If I, and he says, during periods when the former dominate, when the right hand of the brain dominates, creativity flourishes. The right brain tells stories with an engaging mix of nuance and metaphor, word play and humor, and it, and it leavens it with an all-important handful of empathy. When the left brain, however, is more, it is more, when that dominates, it is more literal, didactic, and self-conscious, with a penchant for voiceovers telling the audience what to think. Now, if you look at your, even, if you turn on telly now, 
you will find supers are used and voiceovers are used. Now, in the 1970s and 80s, the use of a super or a voiceover was the admission that there was no idea in this commercial. Okay. It was, but, the, but we are dominated by left-hand thinking, which is telling people what to think, which you can see manifesting itself in the social purpose. Absolutely. I will tell you what to think. I will tell you what your... I will set your moral compass for you. Okay. Um, funny enough, people prefer being entertained than being told what to think. Strange, that. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, and if I think especially it, by uh, an uninvited guest in, in, in the, you know, in your own living room. Yeah, well, yeah. if you think back to kind of, we've referenced this a lot. There's some ridiculous adverts that I remember when I was younger that just stick in my. I can't necessarily always tell you what product they were for, but I can remember mm. the catchphrase, mm. describe we it very to, vividly. I remember, you know, on the way to school, we would joke, we would talk about what was on telly last night, mm. the Monty Python. And something, and also about which ads we found funny. Mm. Well, like can you imagine children that? doing that today? No. Can I? You know, the one of the classicals, and I don't want to sound like yeah, but, but but do you remember <laughs> this? Do you remember that? But <laughs> but the but the um, but the Smash Martian is, is that regarded was the one as one that was in my mind. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's Number two of all time, according to well. One. It was in, uh, up until 2016. The yep. latest uh, research uh, ranks that as number 100 now. That's, yep. But this is amongst marketers. Exactly. It's not exactly. amongst the public. This is amongst marketers. And, can I, and they, were, they asked various leading people from the industry, um, the people who are shaping the advertising, mm. what they think of the Martians. They couldn't find the purpose. And... And this is, came from Nicole Yershin. That's Nicole Yershin, ladies and gentlemen. Y-E-R-S-H-O-N. Who came to one of our events not so very long ago. Yeah. Right. Director Innovative in Solutions, Ogilvy yep. Group Advertising. And this was her view. So rather than reimagine the Martians, if she was doing this now, I'd focus on creating a program where a portion of Smash Mash sales is earmarked for hunger relief programs in areas of the world that are struggling with malnourishment and hunger. We would we could create a multi-platform smash mash feed. The we could create a multi-platform smash smash mash feed the world presence in social media, where volunteers can share their experiences and encourage others. Stop. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> I go back to Andrew. Andrew Tenzer and, and Ian Murray. That you would need a powerful fucking telescope <laughs> to see the ad world bubble circling the real world wouldn't you absolutely it's it i i it's a really difficult one isn't it i think um it depends on what again what lens you look at this through isn't it well what about looking at the lens that the consumer does and i mean this this is the extraordinary thing to me that how many how many marketers and advertisers are talking about what we're talking about today? And I don't just mean okay, you know, we have our opinions which we shared, but information like that about how consumers are actually reacting. Big. I mean, the great thing about the BBH uh, study is that it's called charts that don't change, mm. and I think there are twenty or something. And the thing is that the key thing about the advertising, it is the one that's changed the most. So really, if you look at it in the, in the whole, in the context of the other charts, they are about things that matter to people, like, like their finances, their relationships within their families, and, and their attitudes to money and saving. And those things haven't really changed. Okay, 
So somebody is is pushing a dial here. It's somebody outside of the consumer arena, you know, somebody who's, mm. and they're pushing it the wrong way, and mm. the consumer is saying so. So I I don't know that it's that it's really that nuanced. I mean, it, marketers should be, you know, the voice of the consumer inside the businesses that they operate in. And here we've got a scenario where they are shouting at the consumer, and the consumer is putting their finger in the, the ears. Mm. And that's evidenced by things like the, the BBH study. Mm. So surely there's something seriously wrong here. I definitely think there's a lack of listening at times, isn't there? I mean, one of the things that we always strive of and we talk about the basics and the foundations here is, you know, who are you trying to talk to? Well, what, a lack of listening. It? We were told not to do consumer research, right? Yeah, it's definitely... You know, by marketers. <laughs> there's something surely shamish day. I think a lot of it maybe also comes from a place of fear of... Sure. Because it is such a volatile landscape in one way or another is is being afraid to say the wrong thing mm -hmm. it is the, the the you know the politics police mm. so to speak and the kind of the finger waggers and but everything we, else we're and not asking them to 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 actually make political statements i actually don't make political statements make commercials which actually engage, entertain, and inform people about the products or services that you're selling. We don't yeah. want, we don't want the, we have no right to I mean, introduce politics. Exactly. Into you, it. We have no, we have no authority to do it. If, we if have no look, mandate absolutely. to do it. If you look at the list of the causes that a brand like Ben & Jerry openly support, what are they notable for? They're notable for the, their divisiveness, that is, they divide opinions very strongly. I mean, you know, there, there are two points of view about them. Um, and they're highly political. So you have to ask yourself the question, why are marketers picking highly divisive and high, highly political subjects and then saying that's what their brand is all about? Because everyone mean, else is doing it. Well, <laughs> that's certainly part of it, like, like Steve says, his group thing. But like yeah. he also says, where's the mandate mm. to do that? Uh, where does it fit in with making ice cream? Um, but not so much that, is that what right have you got if you have a, a howard gossage said advertising is a privilege not a right and if you enter somebody's living room or you enter you you know kind of you you're an uninvited guest you know and you they haven't paid for you to come in you know kind of and so you have no right to then try and tell them how they think tell, to try and tell them your views mm. upon issues that they cannot con that not, neither of you can control mm. you know and we have no right no mandate and certainly no moral authority to be doing that amazing um this has been incredible i could literally talk to you guys for a, a long 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 time but um the one final question i think i have uh, for you today steve is Based, we've spoke about a lot today. Mm. Um, based on what we've spoke about, a lot of the research that we've touched on, you know, um, we're really passionate about while sharing all these different opinions, also giving some support and advice on, on how to move forward. Based on everything we've spoke about today, what one piece of advice would you give to the people listening to this? On the client side and the marketing side? I'd probably say the marketing and brand side. Um, I would say as the only the, the advice I would give anybody who gets involved in this racket, and that is, uh, before you do anything, you ask yourself two problems. What is the problem faced by the person I am trying to talk to? 
and what is the solution provided by the product or service that I'm selling, and that is the solution provided by the product or service to that problem. Um, and if you can't answer that problem, save your money, don't advertise. Wow. And I would also say that self-interest trumps altruism pretty much every time. And so the problem that you're trying to solve is a problem the person has. Not a, a problem they perceive that society has, it is a problem that that person has and the thing that is keeping them awake at night or niggling them or aggravating them or making them wish didn't happen or waking them wish they got, that is the problem you're trying to solve. And if you can't solve that, if you can't answer those two questions, don't bother advertising. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for giving us your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks.